I'm Marcus Greatheart. And I'm David Ball. Welcome to the Addiction Practice Pod. This is a podcast of the BC Centre on Substance Use about approaches to substance use care and treatment. Recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. The reach of this work touches all 198 First Nations in British Columbia. I'm a physician, social worker, advocate, and mentor specializing in addiction treatments, social justice and healthcare, and doctor-patient communication. And I'm a journalist with a decade of reporting on substance use, mental health, and public health policies. This is a podcast for healthcare providers focused on issues here in British Columbia. We'll hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Today, we will be discussing prescribed safer supply. It's a novel approach to reducing the harms and risk of drug toxicity death due to the unpredictable and increasingly toxic unregulated drug supply. So Marcus, prescribed safer supply has been described as a harm reduction approach. Could you talk about how this actually works? Well, it aims to provide an alternative to the unregulated toxic drug supply through access to a legal and regulated drug supply so that individuals know what substances they're getting and how much. So it's not intended to be used as a treatment for substance use disorders, is that right? Yeah. Prescribed safer supply is not treatment, and it's not an evidence-based intervention. The key differences I see with prescribed safer supply is that it's intended for folks who have not had success with or do not want treatment, but who do want to reduce their reliance on the unregulated supply, which is increasingly toxic and unpredictable. Interesting. So another question that comes up for me is if prescribed safer supply and the new protocols to support it are not evidence-based, what are they based on? So the protocols are based on clinical experience and expert consensus. The intention is to update the protocols as evidence emerges and as we gain clinical experience. There's some preliminary peer-reviewed evidence available. The evaluation of programs is ongoing. And do these early data address any of the potential harms or unintended consequences from prescribed safer supply? It's a great question, David, and I know it's front of mind for a lot of people. Potential harms have been hypothesized, such as increased incidence of infection and drug-related deaths. These are being monitored in ongoing evaluations. Preliminary data show that prescribed safer supply does not increase the risk of infections or drug-related deaths. Marcus, what about diversion of prescribed supply? Diversion is the use of medication by someone other than the patient for whom it was prescribed. It's an unintended consequence of prescribed safer supply that has been reported in some early evaluation data. Is this something that prescribers should be concerned about? Well, it's complex. People may divert their supply for many reasons. Maybe they're using it as a source of income because they're experiencing poverty or their prescribed medication isn't the right dose or the right drug, so they sell it to access drugs that manage their withdrawal symptoms. Or they may be providing regulated drugs to a friend or loved one who doesn't have access to a prescriber. When we think about our role as prescribers, it's our responsibility to avoid harm. So we want to get the drug and dosage right for our clients. 
to reduce their reliance on the unregulated drug supply, and to reduce the risk of diversion, which can potentially cause harm at the community level. Definitely sounds like there are potential benefits and harms that need to be weighed when you're prescribing safer supply, and that's at both the individual and community level. Yeah. Current guidance and protocols advise clinicians to use prescriber discretion when weighing these potential harms and benefits and to refer to their program-specific diversion protocols. You can find the articles and resources we discussed during the episode in the show notes, and that includes some of the preliminary data that Marcus just mentioned. In today's episode, we'll be hearing from individuals who have on-the-ground experience with prescribed safer supply programs. This episode offers a snapshot of real-world clinical and lived experience of two different prescribed safer supply programs, one in BC and the other in Ontario. It is not meant to summarize all of the potential benefits and harms of prescribed safer supply, or to reflect the diversity of all programs across the province and country. Today, we want to bring you a few different perspectives. First up, we're excited to hear from Corey Ranger. Corey is a harm reduction nurse educator and former clinical nurse lead for Victoria's Safer Initiative. It's a safer supply program based out of AVI Health and Community Services in Victoria, BC. Corey, it's great to have you here with us. I wondered if you could talk a bit about prescribed safer supply. For sure. I mean, if we're going to talk about prescribed safer supply, we have to kind of pull back a little bit and talk about safe supply in general or regulated drug access. And at its core, a safe supply is truly intended to be access to pharmaceutical alternatives to the unregulated and toxic drug supply. And the unregulated and toxic drug supply is made toxic by prohibition, and it's made toxic by the current laws that exist. And what we've seen so far, at least since COVID has emerged, has been a radical increase in the volatility of the unregulated drug supply. Incorporations of tranquilizer, animal tranquilizers, including xylazine, benzodiazepines like atizolam and bromazolam, truly no quality control control that happens there. And so in the current context of this public health emergency, we're not really dealing with a crisis of opioids or overdoses. We're dealing with a crisis of drug poisonings. People don't know what they're getting. There's no consumer rights. And that's what safe supply really is about. It's about bodily autonomy. Prescribed safer supply is delivered through a medicalized lens, and it can look in a number of different fashions, like the Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver, where people are able to access injectable hydromorphone as, a, as an alternative to the unregulated drug supply. Uh, or it could look like one of the safer programs like Safer Victoria or Safer Vancouver, or some of the programs that are developing in the North Island. And in those programs, people are offered fentanyl as an alternative to the unregulated drug supply. Prescribed safe supply, as we know, has really been a contentious issue in British Columbia. It represents one component of a continuum that we need to see fully invested in if we're actually going to start to see a change to the preventable deaths that have been happening in British Columbia. Can you talk about some of the evidence that you have collected for the prescribed safe supply? Because one of the great things about interviewing people on this podcast is everyone has so much evidence that they're gathering day to day for many years. So I would like to hear a bit about yours and what you've learned from these programs. 
The Victoria Safer Initiative got its funding in June of 2020 from Health Canada's Substance Use and Addictions Program to actually develop, implement, and evaluate a flexible model for prescribed safer supply. And we were only given 10 months of funding in order to do so. And so we got started right away by working in the homeless encampments and connecting people on an individual basis to safe supply. And concurrently, we started doing research and we partnered with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research and Solid Outreach in order to develop a concept mapping exercise that would help determine what people need from a safe supply program in order for it to be accessible and effective. And we did focus groups with people who inject their drugs, people who smoke their drugs, people who live in the hotel shelter sites, people who are living in the parks, people who identified as First Nations, Indigenous or Métis, people who are engaging in sex work. And we asked them all one centralizing question, which was, I would access safe supply if. And they filled in the blanks. And that's how we informed our program. We tried to take an iterative approach with the program. And every time we got feedback, we would develop and change. We set up med delivery programs when some of our participants who are in wheelchairs were not able to get to the pharmacy. We put together overdose prevention sites in the parks when risk was higher over check week. And we tried really hard to you know, embody this flexible model that Health Canada has as a definition of a safe supply program. Over time, we also heard that people weren't having their needs met just through hydromorphone or oxycodone tablets. And so we opened a clinic and we started offering fentanyl alternatives, injectable sufentanyl, fentanyl patches and fentanyl tablets. And over the time, we've also been collecting the feedback. And so that's the data component. How is this actually working? Do we know if this is actually working? And the answer, at least on the side of Victoria Saver, is a resounding yes. We collect all of this data because we also know that the evidence on prescribed safer supply is quite shallow right now. And that quite often some of the biggest detractors of a safe supplier are going to say, well, where's the evidence? How do we know that this is being informed? by the evidence. And so Safer spends a lot of time trying to contribute to that body of evidence. Yeah, I think as a clinician myself who's doing safe supply, I often I see how our education as healthcare providers in, in whether it's medical school, nursing school, social work school, we're is anchored in opioid agonist treatments and with a goal of helping people abstain from using drugs and I see from my, my own experience how this can feel like a stretch from the formal education that many of us received when we were training. Based on your clinical experiences implementing the Prescribed Safer Supply Program in Victoria, what lessons could you share with other clinicians? There are so many lessons that can be gleaned from trying to do this work. And if I was to try to impart some wisdom onto clinicians who are considering doing this, it would be just to understand the role that you play in prescribed safer supply and understand the power dynamics that exist in this type of initiative. Because, you know, there, in order to do safe supply means relinquishing some of that power. And it means taking the lead of people who use drugs. And there is a high degree of paternalism that does exist in medicine. It exists in nursing. It exists in the entire healthcare system. It's created 
generations of trauma, whether we've actively participated in it or we just live and work within those institutions that have created harms, those harms are there and those power dynamics are there. And so if you're going to be doing prescribed safer supply, start now. If you haven't been talking to people who use drugs, talking to your patients, understanding why they're using drugs and what their goals are, and really try to challenge some of your biases and your preconceived notions or what you believe to be priorities for the patient, because it might not align with what their goals are. And what we've learned from trying to do this program is that done through a prescriber-driven lens, safe supply is not going to meet the needs of all of the people who are actually at risk of overdose. A large amount of people don't meet the qualifications for an opiate use disorder. They don't meet the qualifications for a substance use disorder, but they're still using episodically or recreationally. They're still at risk of toxic drug death. We play one small role in trying to really turn the ship around and stop having these six deaths a day. And so there are limits in what a prescribed safer supply can offer. With that being said, there are opportunities around every corner where we can try to increase the accessibility of these programs. We can try to improve the impact of these programs. And that means looking inward at both your own practice and at the way that your organization operates. Find out what is most inaccessible about your program. Uh, Find opportunities to integrate feedback from your participants in real time so that you can take that same iterative approach. If your program is static, you're likely going to fall behind quickly. We're already regularly outpaced by the unregulated drug supply in the world of benzodiazepine and xylazine contamination. We're currently in the midst of losing our effective tools in supporting people through safe supply because we can't keep up with that level of contamination. And so it's really important that we acknowledge all of that. There's bigger things happening, but you have really good opportunities in your practice on a day-to-day basis where you can help people navigate these barriers and make it a little bit safer and a little bit more effective for them. That was Corey Ranger. He's a harm reduction nurse educator and former clinical nurse lead for the Victoria Safer Initiative. We're so pleased to have here with us today, Dr. Andrea Sereda, a physician with the London Intercommunity Health Centre in Ontario. Dr. Sereda is focused on providing healthcare to people who are marginalized from the healthcare system and leads the Safer Opioid Supply Program. Safe supply programs in BC are increasingly offering fentanyl. Can you explain why you think that is and why more, if anything, is needed for prescribed safer supply programs to be successful? Here in Ontario, we're quite jealous that you're able to offer that fentanyl because that isn't something we've been able to do here in Ontario. But people who use drugs have been calling actually for a safe supply of fentanyl itself for a number of years now. So I I really admire BC in meeting those needs and really listening to the communities that they serve. Because the honest truth is tolerances across the country have done nothing but escalate since, again, around the time COVID came. And initially, when I was seeing people pre-COVID, the average user might use four 
four or five points when they came in to see me for the first time. But now people are coming in using a couple of grams, a half ball, a ball. And for your listeners who aren't sure what that is, a ball is 35 points of fentanyl. The medications that we're using in Ontario, which is primarily dilaudid tablets, and I do say dilaudid on purpose as compared to hydromorphone because we use a dilaudid and it cooks better, with a backbone of other long-acting opioids. But people are saying it just doesn't meet their needs. We just can't get to these doses. And so I think with the fentanyl tolerance across the country, we do need to provide actual fentanyl, fentanyl of known concentration, known purity, because that is going to match the tolerances that people are getting from the street supply. And that is how we actually pull them away from the street supply. It really sounds like a lot of what you were just talking about, the expertise you've gained and even how different supplies can cook or how people are using them, what they're seeking really comes from on the ground relationships. Tell me about that, how you're working with what's usually a very marginalized community in our country. It was years of trust building before we really could get safer supply off off the ground in London. And we started back in 2016. And what I've really learned is that drug users actually know what they need and they know what they need to stay alive and they know what they need to stay healthy. And I think that has been the biggest lesson to me in this entire journey, right? Physicians, we didn't invent safe supply. It was an idea that drug user activists have been put for, for a decade or more. Again, knowing that, and listening to folks, consultation with the community of people who use drugs has been integral to the London program since the very, very beginning. Our patients are experts in their drug use. They know more than we do. They're the ones who really push improvements in the program. For example, that knowing that Dilaudid cooks down to less residue than a hydromorphone tablet, we, we learn that from our patients. And so their expertise and their input is absolutely invaluable. So... On that front, um, you know, working with marginalized populations, taking their guidance and leadership, could you kind of talk about how intersectionality plays into marginalized groups and substance use? And for maybe some of the listeners who might not have heard that term before intersectionality, what that would mean in practice for a provider? So when when we think about substance use or drug use in different parts of the Canadian population, it certainly does look different. So one of my jokes is there's more drugs on Bay Street than the downtown east side. We just enforce them differently and we treat people differently when they use them. But there's drugs across every part of our society, and that's been true for as long as humans have been upright, that we've been using substances like that. The people that I take care of are certainly a very specific population. I primarily take care of people living in homelessness who are housing deprived, many sleeping rough, many in encampments, obviously in abject poverty and scarcity of basic things that that should be human rights. And so substance use in this group, it's not just about getting high, which I think people think. It's often a survival technique. If you've been sleeping outside in Ontario winters for three years on the pavement, most of the time you don't even have a tent and you eat once every couple of days, your body hurts, your back aches, you have frostbite on your hands and your feet, maybe the tip of your nose, your chronic disease hasn't been managed because you're so focused on surviving day to day. And so in that context, using fentanyl or using opioids, it's a treatment. It it treats people's physical pain, and it also treats their emotional pain of exclusion from the rest of us. There's a reason why they say heroin feels like a warm hug, because opioids give that emotional relief, and, and fentanyl does that as well. 
again, speaking to the intersectionality, I think we need to really be careful about how we're thinking about why people are using drugs in, in patient groups like mine. And also, I think we need to be really careful about chicken and egg scenarios. And one that one that always comes to mind is that intersection between housing deprivation, drug use and mental illness. And so I hear all the time that we need more mental health funding, more treatment recovery funding for substance use so that we can fix the problem of homelessness on our streets in Canada. And so people saying that are assuming that mental health and substance use came before the housing deprivation. And in my experience, it's usually the complete opposite. So people became homeless because they didn't have enough money to pay their rent month to month. They have life events. Social assistance rates aren't even a third of what rents are in London, Ontario. And so people end up on the streets. And as I just said, the streets hurt their body. Their streets hurt their brain and their emotions. And people cope. And with that comes often either the development of new mental health issues like depression, anxiety, PTSD, panic syndromes, or worsening of pre-existing mental health problems as well. When we're thinking about how those intersect, I'd really, I'd like to put housing as the primary objective because, you know, housing is healthcare in terms of helping folks stabilize their substance use. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, oversimplification to a single answer is not accurate in almost any case. If people say that it's only for not getting high, some people are doing it because they need to get high to get self-medication in a way. Other people are coming from a lot of adverse childhood events and trauma, and others maybe aren't, and they develop those things after. So really good to keep the broader view and listen to what people are saying, not assume, because that I guess that would dictate treatment, wouldn't it, how people approach it? It is. And that's part of what we talk about with our patients on the Safer Supply program and in their intake appointment, in their first few appointments, what are their goals with Safer Supply? And so some folks, their goals are they want to stop using fentanyl and they need some clean drugs to be able to do that. That's great. We can help folks with that. Some people say their goal is just not to die. So they still do want euphoria. They still want to get high, but they don't want to be having reversed overdoses every other day. So they want to continue use drugs, but in a safer way. And then some people have objectives not even related to drug use specifically, but they don't want to go to jail anymore. They want to reduce the amount of sex work. They don't want to be shoplifting anymore. And with a clean supply that they're able to get day to day, they no longer have that hustle to make the 200, 400 bucks a day needed to purchase fentanyl. So we really work to, to listen to folks in, in those first few visits and as their needs evolve. So that we're tailoring what they're asking for and what they need to the individual person, because one size does not fit all, as you said. Andrea, I'm curious what types of evidence you're collecting at your Safer Opioid Supply Program, what sort of outcomes you've seen so far and results you've had. Our program evaluation that we released last January, so a year ago, it even surprised us. I, th I think you can be so embedded in the work that, that you lose the forest for the trees. And so it was really heartening to see our results come out in that evaluation. And I think there's a few key points that are important for your listeners. We saw use of unregulated opioids, so fentanyl street supply, really reduced within the first three to six months of people getting a safer supply. So going from 100% of people using fentanyl street supply down to 46% at three months and then 32% down at six months. That surprised me. 
it surprised me because I, I thought a lot more people continued to use a lot more fentanyl and that made me happy. And then the second result that really surprised me as well is that we found that after starting Safer Supply, 35% of our patients were no longer injecting drugs at all. And then we have big reductions in, in fatal overdose and in reversed overdose as well from 60 down to 23%. For care providers who are interested in prescribed safer supply, do you have any resources that you can share where they can get some more information or some suggestions for next steps? We have an excellent website with the National Safer Supply Community of Practice. Within the Community of Practice, which we actually run out of Intercommunity Health here in London, there is a wealth of resources, a wealth of evidence on that site. So many webinars that explain how to run a program, how to start a program from the perspectives of all different disciplines, whether that's clinicians such as doctors and nurse practitioners, whether it's pharmacists and program administrators. There's lots of information there, no matter what what angle you're coming at Safer Supply with. Within the community of practice, there's also drop-in weekly mentoring calls, and there's the opportunity for mentoring with clinicians who've been doing this for some time, both through on-call work and clinical mentorship groups. So there are lots and lots of ways to learn more. That was Dr. Andrea Cerveda, a family physician who leads the Safer Opioid Supply Program at the London Intercommunity Health Centre. And our final guest today is Jenny McDougall. She's co-founder of the Coalition of Substance Users of the North and a safer supply advocate and peer support worker in Quinell. So my name is Jenny McDougall, and I just wanted to respectfully acknowledge that I am doing this and I live, work, play, rest, and learn on the unceded traditional territories of Lataco Dene and what's colonially known as Quinell, BC. Um, I'm a person with decades of lived experience in substance use, entrenched homelessness, and addiction. I've been off of illicit supply for about 11 years now, and I've been on, on OAT specifically methadone. And during that time, about six years ago, I got involved in harm reduction work and CSUN, which is Coalition of Substance Users of the North. And we have a nonprofit space where we have OPS booths, food, clothing, advocacy, and peer support. And my role there is office manager, but also I do the prescribed safe supply peer advocacy program, which I founded that and I lead that and that includes me doing all the deliveries for methadone, Katie and Suboxone, safe supply meds. And I like drive people to appointments. I give them reminders. I deliver the meds to the shelter, the supportive housing building, as well as to the streets and people's homes. And I sit at many tables around BC advocating for better access to safe supply. Being homeless, no phone, all of that is very hard to make the appointment for one reason is because you know when you're first starting it it's not even going to do anything so having to go to an appointment every week where you're doing urine analysis when i was on it you could you weren't supposed to have anything in your system like when i first went on it you weren't supposed to have other opiates in your system it, it was hard to not get kicked off all the time 
So anyways, once I found a doctor that would listen to me and I just said, this isn't going to work for me until I get to a point where it makes me feel like I'm high. Like, I, I'm not going to stop. That's why the, why I'm doing this. I want to be, I need to be high. And I did. I had a lot of trauma I was dealing with. I probably would have committed suicide if I wasn't using drugs. They numbed me like I needed to be numbed for many years. And once I got on oat, I was able to... My doctor gave me a dose that brought me up to a dose that was very high. So I still felt like I was on the nod. And those were the feelings I wanted at that time. Once I was able to get into housing, everything changed. Not right away, but gradually it changed. I stopped having to go and my dose was getting higher. I stopped having to sell myself. I stopped having to do crime. I stopped having to do things that made me hate myself. And once I got to that point, I started gradually choosing myself to come down because I didn't need to be oblivious anymore. And that's how, that is why I advocate so hard for people like right now in our town, if you're on safe supply, you see that doctor every week. If you miss that appointment, you're cut off your safe supply right, right away. Right now, the lot is that people are getting here. That's all we can access, except for about four people have the patch. But that's really high barrier too. You got to work your way up onto methadone before he'll put you on the patch. So people don't want methadone. With fentanyl laced with benzos, their tolerance is so high that methadone doesn't cut it until they're in a very high dose. And the Dilatas, they, I've seen people take all 14 with 200 mils of methadone and they're still sick an hour later. And that's why we see diversion happening. Like people will take some, but then sell the rest so that they can get some that's going to get them unsick. So when we do that, then the chaos is still there. So people are still on the nod. Sometimes they miss their appointments or they stay awake for days and then they crash and miss an appointment or miss a phone call and then they're deducted or cut off their meds. So it's just like this never ending cycle of being on a med, off the med, being on a med, off the med, and which is very dangerous. We need to make things lower barrier. Have a day of a week where people, if they miss their appointment, they can go to where drop off a urine sample or go take one on a out on a day where there's no clinic. We need to be creative around how to help people be able to maintain on these events and get to a point of their so that their dose is high enough to help them with their tolerance levels. One of the things that stood out as I I'm seeing with the fentanyl patches i seen one person who didn't have to go onto the methadone at first the doctor knew him and was able to just put him right on it and that has been very successful he's doing great he likes the patch is helping him not use as much and once he goes up to a higher dose on it like he's ready he's i'll only use when i want to go out like i want to be able to choose not to and not be sick that's what people want when I was in Vancouver many years ago using, I I didn't know, when I first got there, I didn't know where to go for syringes and stuff. And it wasn't as common as it is now to have these multiple places where you can go. So I would just, I picked up needles off the alley. I've used puddle water. And this is the kind of things that happened. I ended up getting a, a staph infection in my blood and I lost use of my legs for two months. We get so sick and because of all the stigma in healthcare, we don't want to go until we have to. We know what our body, what works for us. I used methadone long before I got a script from a doctor. We've done these drugs many times. We know how they affect us. 
and I just feel like unless there's health issues preventing you from doing what the client is asking to just listen to your clients. That was JD McDougall, a safety supply advocate and peer support worker. Today, we've heard from some leading experts on prescribed safer supply. So, Marcus, what are our main takeaways today? Prescribed safer supply is an approach that falls within the continuum of care for substance use disorders. It offers access to a regulated supply of drugs. The main goal is to reduce the risk of harms and drug toxicity deaths that come from the unregulated drug supply. It's intended to reach individuals who are at high risk of drug toxicity from unregulated drugs. Also, there's an important distinction to be made between prescribed safer supply and substance use treatment. Prescribed safer supply is a novel intervention being trialed for people who have not benefited sufficiently from treatment or are not interested in accessing treatment. Prescribed safer supply programs aim to reduce harms by reducing a person's reliance on the unregulated drug supply. This does not inherently involve reducing or even stopping substance use. In comparison, treatment is focused on using evidence-based interventions to improve quality of life and reduce or stop non-medical substance use. And while treatment and harm reduction may have different aims, they are not mutually exclusive. Many individuals can and do benefit from both types of care. It's important to note that prescribed safer supply protocols are based on clinical experience. Evaluations are ongoing to assess the safety and effectiveness of prescribed safer supply programs. Unintended consequences, such as diversion, should be taken into account at the individual and community level. As a clinician, this means using prescriber discretion and following the most up-to-date guidance and protocols. Every program should develop its own approach to diversion, prioritizing patient safety, continuity of care, and community safety. And lastly, it is so important to incorporate client-centered care into your practice. Listen to your client and trust them when they tell you what they need, which might be based on what has or has not worked for them in the past. Talk with your client about their goals with prescribed safer supply and understand what harm reduction means for them. Thank you to our guests today, Corey Ranger, Dr. Andrea Sereda, and Jenny McDougall. If you're interested in learning more about prescribed safer supply or want to read the preliminary evidence on safer supply programs, check out the resource in the show notes. There, you can also find the most up-to-date resources from the BCCSU, including the Opioid Use Disorder, Practice Update, and Prescribed Safer Supply Protocols. And as usual, help us to create the best possible podcast by filling out our short survey. Just click the link to it in the show notes. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use. And it was made possible through a financial contribution from Doctors of BC, with support from BC's Ministry of Health and Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, and founding support from Health Canada. The views expressed here do not necessarily represent the views of those organizations. I'm Marcus Greathart. And I'm David Ball. Thank you all so much for listening.